Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Welcome to the 2021 Mississippi Book Festival panel for Book Club Picks. I'm your host, Lynn Roberts. I'm the manager of Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, and it's my honor to welcome you to this virtual event, Book Club Picks with authors. The authors are Christy Woodson Harvey with her book, Under the Southern Sky from Gallery Books, Catherine St. John, or as Karen would probably say, Sinjin, uh, with her book, The Siren, from Grand Central Publishing, and uh, Karen White with her latest book, The Last Night in London, from Berkeley Books. Welcome, y'all. Let me give everyone a, to sort of a brief introduction. Um, Christy Whitson Harvey is the New York Times USA Today and Publishers Weekly bestselling author of nine novels, including Under the Southern Sky. The Peachtree Bluff series with Christmas in Peachtree Bluff is will be released October 26th, so that's coming up soon. She is a co-founder and co-host of the weekly web show and podcast Friends in Fiction with fellow authors Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Patty Callahan-Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe. She lives in North Carolina with her husband and seven-year-old son, where she is working on her next novel. And she is busy with lots of other things, too. So it's um, amazing how much she gets done. Catherine St. John is a native of Mississippi and a graduate of the University of Southern California. Her debut, The Lion's Den, was praised by the New York Times Book Review and many others, And her follow-up, The Siren, uh, for which she draws on her experience over a decade in the film industry as an actress, screenwriter, and director, is just as juicy, which is what Karen Wright called it, her her word, uh, as uh, The Lion's Den. Catherine currently lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two daughters. Karen White is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of 29 books, almost 2 million in print in 15 different languages. Her latest book, The Last Night in London, is a standalone, but it does feature two of the major characters that have appeared in earlier novels, um, Precious DeBose, um, From All the Ways We Said Goodbye, and Maddie Warner, From Falling Home and After the Rain. Uh, she'll have a new novel coming out in November. It's the seventh in the Trad Street Mystery Series, and it's called The Attic on Queen Street, and it is due out on November 2nd. Mm-hmm. She, um, she grew up in London, but now lives with her husband in near Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Welcome to all you Southern gals, and it's a great pleasure for me to be with you. I've uh, loved reading these books. It's been so much fun um, getting ready to talk with you. Um, And I wonder if y'all would each just tell us a little bit about your latest book. Um, Christy, would you like to begin? 
I would love to. Well, thank you, Lynn. Thanks for the introduction and for having us. And I'm so excited to see Karen and meet Catherine. I'm big fans of both of theirs. So this is just really fun. And I just wish we were doing it in person, but thank y'all for pivoting and letting us do it like this. It's great. Um, so Under the Southern Sky is uh, my seventh book, which is really hard to believe. Um, and it is about an investigative journalist named Amelia, who is working on a story about what people do with their leftover frozen embryos when she inadvertently discovers that a cluster of embryos belonging to her childhood friend Parker and his late wife Greer have been deemed abandoned. And so she's put in this situation where, of course, she has to tell Parker that, um, you know, this is what's happening. And he has to make the decision about what to do with what is effectively the last remaining piece of this woman that he loved so much. So we get to see this story through the eyes of Parker, who's the father of the embryos. And we get to see his late wife, Greer, through her journal entries. And then, of course, Amelia, who is the journalist and Parker's childhood friend. And Amelia's good Southern meddling mama, Elizabeth, who is so fun to write because we all need someone to tell us what to do when we are not sure. <laughs> it's always a good thing to have. Um, but this was a really interesting book for me to write, especially because it was something I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, a friend of mine actually had come to me about five or six years ago and was really struggling with what to do with her leftover frozen embryos. And she said, you know, a lot of couples are going to be going through this and I think you should write a book about it. And I didn't know what the story would be, but I, I knew that was a good idea. And so I had a lot of things in the works and was in the middle or just starting a series. And so every year I kept being like, oh, someone please don't write this book. Please don't write this book. Please don't write this book. Um, but it was such interesting timing because um, as the book was coming out, there was so much coming up in the media about all of these abandoned frozen embryos and um, you know what the cost is to doctor's offices and hospitals and um, storage places and you know, what the solution is to this problem and are, you know, is this life, can you destroy it? Can you give it away? Can you adopt it out if it's been abandoned? So um, it's been really interesting to kind of watch the story evolve um, while I was writing the book and then after. So I guess maybe five years was the right time. I'm not sure, but I loved writing this book and have been so excited to get to share it with people. All right. Thank you so much, Christy. Uh, Catherine, do you want to give us your, your pitch? Absolutely. So once again, I'm, I also wish that we were doing this in person, but here we are. We're kind of used to being on Zoom now. It's <laughs> the way we are. Um, so The Siren is my book, and it is set on a beautiful Caribbean island where a film is being shot. And the film is produced by mega movie star Cole Power, um, and it is starring him and his ex-wife, Stella Rivers. And he and Stella don't get along. Um, so why he cast her in this film is one of the mysteries that is central to the book. Um, it's told from rotating points of view. So you have Stella, who is struggling with substance abuse. Um, she lost her career about 10 years ago in the wake of multiple very public breakdowns, kind of like um, we saw with uh, Britney Spears or, you know, a lot of other um, uh, women who were who got who came to fame in the early aughts. Um, and she's really struggling to regain um, footing uh, in the entertainment world. Um, and so we have Stella and then we have Taylor, who is the producer of the film, who also has had career trouble. Um, she worked for her father's studio and she was fired uh, over a scandal that she's trying to get her career back on track after that. And then we have Felicity, who is Stella's beautiful, mysterious young assistant, 
um, who is maybe too good to be true. Um, and there's definitely some kind of all about Eve vibes going on between Stella and Felicity. So those are our main characters. And one of the reasons that I wanted to tell it from different points of view is that this book really deals with um, how we perceive one another and, um, you know, how we don't always understand uh, who somebody really is. You know, we have preconceived notions about who somebody is based on um, what they look like or where they're from or, you know, lots of different things, what they do for a living. Um, and we get our information about celebrities from um, all of these different magazines and, um, and or, you know, online news sources, and they're often not true. So I have a lot of those online and magazine um, resources woven through the book, kind of give us, giving us the, um, the, the idea of what the world sees of these stars who are on this island. And then we're getting the behind the scenes look at who they really are, um, as well as how they see one another. Um, so there is a mystery that is central uh, to the book, which is what happened to uh, Felicity's mother. And all of the people who are on the island have a reason for being on the island that may or may not be uh, what it seems to be. So once again, you know, playing with the ideas of things are not as they seem on the surface. Um, so you have all of these people who are interacting with one another, trying to shoot a film. And then a hurricane uh, starts to come towards the island, which really kind of throws things into another gear, um, traps all of them on the island, it unites them against a common enemy. Um, but as deceptions come to light, it turns out that the hurricane may be the least of their worries. So things really ratchet up uh, in the end. I would call it an escapist thriller, but it's it's not all fluff. <laughs> I definitely have had some people uh, read the book going in thinking because of the beautiful cover that it was a, a just a romantic comedy or something. And I see Karen nodding. She can definitely tell you it's not a romantic comedy. There is a lot of uh, deeper issues at play, but I do think that it's still, um, uh, I, I strove to make it a fun page turner all the way through as well. So I hope that it's something that can be enjoyable and also plums deeper issues about like uh, the Me Too movement and addiction and um, a lot of stuff in there. All right. Yeah, it was, it, well, it was definitely a cinematic setting. I'll say that Maybe <laughs> in your mind. Karen, would you tell us about Last Night in London? Absolutely. Um, first of all, um, I'm sorry that you are missing the like 30,000 cousins and relatives of mine who are planning on coming to our panel. Both my parents are from Mississippi, my dad from Biloxi, and my mom from the Delta from Indianola. So I had all my cousins who were ready to come and then they were so disappointed. So anyway, so hopefully, fingers crossed, um, next year, and you will once again be flooded by all of Karen's relatives. Um, anyway, um, this book, The Last Night in London, uh, was really inspired years and years ago before I even planned on becoming a writer. When we moved to London and we moved into this gorgeous Edwardian building on Regent's Park. It had been built in 1904. It had lots of um, famous tenants, Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, um, Cliff Richard, uh, uh, Joan Collins, you remember um, Alexis Carrington from Dynasty? <laughs> it was kind of exciting. And then us, you know. Um, but I, the day that we moved in, I remember the porter explaining to us that the reason why some of the windows in our apartment 
um, or flat were um, leaded glass and others like right, you know, down the hallway were um, plain glass was plain glass and leaded glass was because during the blitz, uh, nearby bombs had shattered those windows. And because it was wartime, they just replaced them with the easiest thing, um, which was plain glass. And again, I had absolutely no dream of becoming a writer at that time, but I was a huge reader and I loved storytelling in my head and just making up stories. I just didn't like writing them down because it's really hard work. <laughs> and, and I didn't know how to type at the time, you know, and so handwriting, everything was just, it, it wasn't for me. Um, but I remember so many nights lying in bed, imagining the lives of the people that had lived in that flat before me, um, you know, in my bedroom and in my flat and also during the blitz. And for those of you who are not familiar, the blitz was, I mean, nine months of almost nightly bombings. It was, I mean, if you can imagine going to bed and then waiting to hear the sirens and then having to seek shelter, you know, not knowing who's going to survive, what buildings were going to survive, if your family was going to survive in the next morning. Um, but I was haunted by this. And, you know, um, and of course, you know, in my head, I was always trying to imagine the people that lived there. So then I became a writer and I knew at some point I would have to write, you know, the, um, the American expatriate story living in London, because that was my mother. My mother is from the Delta. She has, you know, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions. I actually like the um, accent, but I know my son has said that he needs a, a translator when he comes to visit family. Um, but my mother there with her, you know, um, Delta accent, you know, um, getting made fun of by shopkeepers and stuff in England. And she would just handle it with such a plum, a plum. And I just, you know, I really admired that about her. And I, but I love that, you know, fish out of water story. I, many of my books kind of take, take, that is sort of the, the, the essence. And um, so I took a, a Southern girl from um, Georgia, uh, that Maddie Warner, she is my current heroine. And she is a, a so uh, she's a journalist, a freelance journalist who has been hired by British Vogue to write an article doing an interview of a woman turning 100 years old, Precious DuBose, um, who had, was a former model during um, the World War II. And she lives in this building called Harley House, which is where I live. So it was really cool revisiting my home um, in fiction. And um, Maddie's like, great you know, um, that she's just going to talk about her life during the blitz and, you know, life before life after yada, all the pretty clothes, yada, yada, fun, easy assignment. Cause they're going to be doing this huge exhibit of fashion in an age of crisis at the London fashion museum. And they're going to run Maddie's piece in British Vogue in conjunction with this, um, um, exhibit. So she's thinking this is great, great exposure, easy. So she actually moves into Harley house in the bedroom that I lived in. So it was easy. Um, and she begins interviewing Precious DuBose. And it isn't very long before we discover that there's a lot more to Precious's story than anybody ever dreamed of. So you do, it is a split time frame. We do go back to um, the war years, late 30s, early 40s, and especially London during the Blitz. Um, and we hear Precious's story as told by her best friend, Ava, a former model. And it's through this back and forth that we, first of all, the one thing that I love the most is unexpected friendships. Yeah. And 100-year-old Precious and 20, 28-year-old Maddie form this really strong bond 
because of the secrets that they start peeling away um, as they as they get to know each other. So we get to hear it goes back and forth and there's this big mystery and all these things just cut play out towards the end of the book. And um, there is sort of a big bombshell moment that I can't mention because it would <laughs> everything away. <laughs> But that's basically, and it's all set in London, but it's funny because we have Maddie Warner, who's from the small town in Georgia, who is very Southern, who, you know, says things like, you know, butter my button, call me a biscuit and things like that, that I grew up hearing, um, that my copy editor in New York kept on saying, people don't talk like this. And I'm like, yeah, they do. (laughs) I call my cousin Bob in Greenwood, you know, and he'll tell you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's The Last Night in London, and um, there will not be a sequel, um, and, this is not, and this is not a sequel. Again, we have, I have three other books where Maddie Warner, and um, two with Maddie, and one with Precious, so if you ever want to know their, their origin story, sure, read those other books, but this is a standalone. Right. Well, I, I hope we get to meet all your cousins. Well, yeah, yeah, they next year. Me, yeah. <laughs> We can maybe try to figure out who who is who in your books. Oops. (laughs) We all look alike, so it'll be easy to tell who the Karen White relatives are. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, thank you all so much. Um, So uh, these are, you know, our our topic is the book club picks, and these are really terrific. I mean, one of the things that makes a book club book great is if there's lots of you know meat there for discussion and disagreement about how you know thorny issues and and how you handle things and um and i think that these books are really are are great for that or will lead to some really lively discussions um so i'm wondering if there are you know what what's like the number one topic or or issue that you would like uh, book clubs to discuss about your book or what do you want them to take away from this hmm. just to go in alphabetical order again sure or, or just i think we can probably that that would be me that. right <laughs> it's h before s no, well they're all you're all okay so you i know that's true oh we are yeah. <laughs> um you know i think really it was funny, like listening to you guys talk. I think, I don't know if this is Southern upbringing or what this is, but there's something about secrets, I think, and the South and these Southern characters that um, I, I absolutely love to write about secrets. And so each of my four protagonists has a secret. And as those secrets are revealed, um, what ultimately ends up happening to these embryos you know, comes to light. But I think that each of the secrets, I'm not going to tell them because it kind of spoils the story, but each of them provides something kind of meaty that, you know, book clubs can talk about because they're all these sort of moral issues that um, people end up making these big decisions about. And, you know, I, I really, really like writing about, I like writing characters that do the right thing for the wrong reason and the wrong thing for the right reason. Um, I think that's just always really interesting. So there's a lot of that in this story. Um, But I think at its core, like beyond the whole, you know, would you have the embryos? Would you not? Like, what do you do with them? Um, it's a story about how we create our families and you get to see that in every one of these characters and even some of the secondary characters, they're all creating a family that doesn't necessarily look like, um, you know, what the traditional family has always been. And so that was, um, 
probably one of my favorite parts about writing the book was getting to, you know, to look at and think about, you know, how do we create our families and what does that mean? And what does it look like when we're younger? And then what does it look like when we grow up and, and how do we change and how does our family change along with it? So, um, I think there's a lot to talk about in this one, um, probably more than anything else I've written. Yeah. So I hope, I hope book clubs enjoy it if they read it. Catherine or Karen? Uh, well, um, there's a lot of things that I can't talk about in The Siren because, once again, there are a lot of secrets that are revealed, and I don't want to spoil anything, but there's definitely um, a morality issue that plays into the very ending of the book, and there is the question of, is it the right thing to do in the situation? Does the, you know, there's a, there's a revenge element to the book. I can, I can say that much. And when that revenge is exacted, is it deserved? Are you for it? Are you against it? What might you do in the same situation? Uh, what might be a different way to handle that? And then also, like I said, this, this book is a lot about perception and how we perceive one another and the judgments that we make about each other and and whether those are wrong or right and and some of them in the book are proven wrong and some of them are proven right this book deals a lot with the gray area uh you know life is not just black and white you know characters over the course of the book change somebody who in the beginning of the book seems to be maybe a bad character as you get to know them and you understand their motivations for the things that they do you see the reasons behind it and then you come to say well maybe they're actually not bad maybe if I were put in that same situation I might do the same thing so I really like to write characters that um, that that have that you know that gray area that that make people examine their own ideas about right and wrong and about uh, what they would or wouldn't do when placed in a in a certain situation so yeah that I think that that like that morality and that gray area is something that I would love to hear discussed in book clubs no it's funny because all three of our books have um, I think a big part is is moral right or wrong you know um and I like when I read a book or when I write a book I like to sort of stretch my understanding and I think of, of you know because as children we are taught right and wrong okay and it's very black and white as children and then as we get older and we get more we become more citizens of the world we realize again making the right decision for the wrong reason or the wrong decision for the I mean it, it's something we juggle with, unfortunately, because you would like to think that life could still be simple like we were when we were children. And in this book, and, I, and it kind of brings to mind, I was recently um, asked to contribute to an essay by another author about the, the popularity of World War II fiction. And to me, I think because in recent memory, that was the last big conflict where right and wrong was so black and white. Um, we knew who the bad guys were. We knew who the good guys were. It was very, very easy. Um, you know, now it's a little more complicated, but, um, and that's why, but I, but I have a character who, when you first meet her, she seems so vain and so shallow. And then you get to understand where she's coming from. 
and and that's what I love. You have to, you cannot just judge somebody by face value. You have to understand where they're coming from um, and why they're making the choices. You might not agree with the choices they're making, but if you understand why, I think as a reader and a writer, you want to con- you want to get to know that character a little bit more. So I definitely have a character here who's, you know, you question her decisions, you you begin to understand her a little bit more. And then when she comes to a point where she has to make that decision to sacrifice so much, everything for the one good thing, what's she going to do? And um, because I wanted people not to know, I didn't want readers what to know, you know, to know, you know, I, they needed to read on to find out what she was going to do. And I think that would be a great discussion among readers, you know, what did they think this character would do? You know, did they grow to like this character? Did they grow to understand her? Or were they just like ready to throw in the towel? And I hope that's no one, but um, because our children (laughs) like our babies, you know, but, um, but yeah, I love moral dilemmas and where the right and wrong is not so clear cut. And you're kind of left like wondering, you know, (laughs) I love that take on World War II fiction. I mean, that, that makes so much sense. I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. The, the bad guys were very, it was very clear who the bad guy was. There wasn't all this gray area of, is this true or what's actually happening? Do we know? You know, there wasn't any of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, but, but also you have the 2019 part of this, this novel too, Karen, that's like where things are not quite so like black and white. And of course the characters in World War II, you know, they had to make these difficult just choices oh, yeah. too. Right. So you have this nice background where everything's sort of, you know, the big picture is easy, but the, the little choices that people make every oh, yeah. day. Yeah. And that's why I love writing intergenerational stories because yeah. here we have 100, almost 99 year old Precious DuBose talking to Maddie and telling her, Right. Your story isn't over. Stop acting like it is because she has been through so much and she has learned and she's really, you know, but like most people, you have to make your own mistakes, but she's really trying to tell Maddie, you ain't seen nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's such a powerful message. Yeah. 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 One of the things that Barry Hannah would say is that there are just two, two stories, you know, there's, a stranger comes to town and <laughs> let's go on a road trip. And I think he was actually, you know, paraphrasing like John Gardner, but I don't really think that that's true because I really think that the, there is another one and it's, I've got a secret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and these books really, I mean, just really just kind of all, all three of them, y'all just kind of gradually peel back. And so you see, and you keep going down these alleys where you think you know what happened. And really, as you get deeper in the characters, you um, you learn that you're completely wrong. So, like, as, as storytellers, that's just amazing to me that you're able to, rather, that you're not really telling a story. I mean, you're actually just sort of guiding the reader along and and... Is that just something you're just able to do or is this an art? Are you very conscious like, well, I'm not going to do this until page 50 or um, how do you draw that out? (laughs) Well, I know my answer and I probably could answer for Karen too, because I've heard her talk about this. I think we both do this, but um, 
I think for me, the, it's the not knowing is why it is so exciting about being a writer. And it's the thing that makes you want to come to the page day after day. And I know that's not the thing for everyone, even as a kid, like even in school, when we would have to like write the outline for the paper, I would have to write the paper and then make up the outline because my brain just doesn't work in that way. Um, Yeah. And so I know I've heard you talk about that too, Karen. Um, And so a lot of times, and I don't know if you guys do this too, and I'm interested to hear this, but especially if I'm working on something that like I'm on deadline for, but then I have this next great idea and there's something that's like, just really won't let me go. And so a lot of times I'm actually writing parts of a story and I don't even really know what the story is yet, but I know there's something. And so I'm over here kind of trying to finish what's due, but then writing these little random chunks of something else and hoping that eventually it's going to turn into something right now. I'm at the nightmarish part where you go back and you're like, I have 20,000 words of, I don't even know what, and I've got to somehow try to figure out how to put it together. So that's where I am right now. It's not great, but it's also kind of fun, but yeah, I, I never know what's going to happen. And I don't know how that works. And the only thing I can think of is just being such an avid reader and I'm not going to speak for all of us but I'm assuming probably we all grew up as pretty avid readers you have this um sense of story just kind of like in your bones and so when you sit down to start writing it you know where that rise and fall is supposed to come even though you aren't really planning it that makes sense Uh, for me, I, I think I do. There's always the question of, are you a pantser or yeah. a plotter, right? Yeah. It sounds like you're a pantser. For sure. <laughs> I, I'm definitely somewhat of a hybrid. I, I kind of do both. Um, with the siren, I was more of a plotter because mm-hmm. the plot is so intricate um, and because there's multiple different points of view um, and also uh, multiple timelines, mm-hmm. in order to weave all of those things together, I had to plot it out first. Otherwise, it would have just been like a complete mess. Um, but with my first book, The Lion's Den, I was definitely more of a pantser. Um, and that meant that I had to come back. And I, you know, I think that made the editing process was a lot more um, heavy and intense. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so now, like, I'm currently working, like you said, like, I, I'll have an idea that speaks to me, and I need to get into it and see what it is. And then something else will speak to me. And then I got to be researching that. And it's like, you kind of get torn. And you're like, okay, which one of these do I want to like, take the reins and make my next book? Yeah. Um, and I, I have one right now that I'm working on, that's very like plotted. And then I have another one that's just like totally amorphous. And I'm just going with the characters because I need that creative outlet because I yeah. do sometimes feel like when things are too plotted, I'm just like, eh. like, I know what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like less motivation that you're reading. Like, why would you read a book if you know how it's going to end? <laughs> why watch a movie if you know how it's going to end? I mean, what is the point? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too hard for me to, I've tried plotting. I've tried doing a synopsis and my editor just said, stop Karen, because it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of my time to read it because the book you turn in has absolutely nothing to do with it because it is. And I remember my favorite first line for one of my books came to me while I was working on another book. I'm typing along and all of a sudden, and I knew it didn't belong in the work I was working on. It was the, the first time I died was the summer I turned 17. I was like, who said that? What is that? And I just wrote it like in an, a blank document. And that became the first line of um, the time between. 
And I spent probably 30,000 words figuring out who that was and what had happened. And, and it just, you know, again, it's very organic. I don't recommend writing that way. It sucks. Like right now I'm, I'm 90,000 words of a book that was due August 1st. And, um, um, yeah, I'm like still trying to figure out how this is all going to come together and it's a mystery. So I better figure it out soon. <laughs> I will say I, I wrote my first, I, I've, everything I've written has been contemporary, but I wrote my first contemporary historical that's coming out in 2022. And it's about two real women, Edith and Cornelia Vanderbilt. And so I, I will say when I got finished with that, I was like, this is why people need to outline because I was like, oh my gosh, I have all of this stuff. I ended up like having whole chapters that I like just totally threw out because I was like, you know, I've got so much going on in the story. Like we don't need that. Or we don't need to see her when she's that young or, um, you pay, I think this is kind of Catherine, what you, I think you were sort of getting to this too. I think you pay on one end or the other, like you either pay on the front end by getting super organized and having your outline and it's kind of boring. But then when you sit down to write, like, you know, exactly where you're going or you pay at the back end. Cause you're like, okay, I've just written all these different characters and time periods. And, oh, wait, it was August 2nd. And then it's supposed to be three days later and it's September 1st. <laughs> That's Oh, well, (laughs) that's what the backspace bar is for. Okay. Yeah. That's so bad. Okay. Well, um, so all of your books are, have these amazing, uh, female characters. You're really strong and, um, or, or maybe like Stella, not so strong, but, um, just really, uh, interesting characters and you deal with these sort of big issues like vitro fertilization and and like this whole celebrity fame worship culture and um so uh and and your books probably are writ- read more by women so chiclet empowering demeaning insulting what do y'all feel about that about if if you get boxed into that box Go ahead, Christy. I was like, Karen, why don't you go first? Let's mix it up. Go reverse it now. Let's reverse it. Um, Let's reverse it. I have to say there was probably a time where it was so easy to um, categorize books. You know, this was science fiction. This was mystery thriller. This was gothic romance. This was contemporary romance. And then we started coming up with more names to just sort of I, I did readers need help kind of finding the books that they, I, I don't know. Um, because I remember as a kid, um, teenager, even a college student and young wife, I would just go to a bookstore and find a book that sounded good. I would go to the fiction and look for a book that sounded like something I'd want to read. And that's why I hate category. And like, Chick lit. What is that? It, I I don't like the label because to me it's very dismissive, and it and it just lumps in like what every book ever written by women that's mostly read by women. I mean, it's just very demeaning. I, you know, and it's not even a way of accurately like like it's a beach read. What does that mean? Is it you know? I think every book I've ever taken to a beach, you know, and. I, and I read Anna Karenina on a beach. That's not a beach read, but I read it on the beach. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? I just, I just want to say these are great fiction books written by women, smart women, 
and they're very readable and you might learn something. I don't like this chiclet. I don't like labels of any kind unless it's very specific science fiction. This is, you know, futuristic fiction. Those are things I can really, because that has a really niche readership that they will be looking for that. But as far as general fiction, let's just call it general fiction. That's all I have to say. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> right on, sister. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm gathering that, that Catherine and Christy, that y'all are like, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I just think of that as something super specific. Like even when that was like the rage, even when I was like, you know, going to Barnes and Noble in college, looking at the chiclet section or whatever in the student store, you know, whatever it was. I feel like that was very like, shopaholic ties the knot and like right. things that you know you knew which I love like I still love those books right. that's not right. a you know but you can kind of tell by the title what kind of yeah. book it is. right but but she was but but that was a very specific type of character it was a very specific type of story mm-hmm. um and you knew exactly what you were going to get from that um I don't know. People used to ask me this and like before I got published, they would say, well, you know, what if someone calls you this or what if they call you that? And I used to say, I don't care what they call me as long as they call the me. So- <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's- no, um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, whatever. It, it is funny though. I, I feel like, I feel like I get a lot more like women's fiction than chiclet, yeah, um, which is probably more, I mean, women's fiction. That's another one. Yeah. Which- yeah. I definitely probably have, I mean, I know I have significantly more female readers, but actually about 25% of my readership, they say is male. And they kept being like, this is a mistake. Like, but it's been like five years in a row. So I don't know, maybe ladies, maybe we're bringing more male readers in. I don't know. It's always funny when you find out that people who are reading your book or who, who approach you, who have read your book and they're not who you thought your demographic was, yes. you know, um, my, for example, my parents' friends, um, and my parents also are from Mississippi and, uh, they have, you know, lots of friends who have all read my books and, and I get messages from like, you know, a friend of my dad's that like, you know, is, is an attorney in, you know, in Nashville and he read the siren. You're like, okay, that's right. They're outliers, but you know, but they're, you can't really call them outliners because there's a big chunk of them. So that's my favorite though. If I'm like to be at the beach and see like a friend's dad or like reading my book (laughs) on the beach, like no shame. Yeah. Yeah. especially if there's racy parts in it that's all, I'm always like I told my mom when she was like with my first book when it came out and she was like you know promoting it on her Facebook page I was like mom you might want to mention that yeah. it does get a little racy and she so she edited her Facebook post post to include that information and all of her Facebook friends were like yes yes <laughs> I'm really gonna read it yeah <laughs> all right all right well, so, you know, since we're talking about uh, checking boxes, uh, so you're all Southern, Southern writers. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like that that informs your writing or has any effect um, um, on your readership or on your writing? I will say I definitely take pride in being a Mississippi writer. I think that there's a lot, uh, there's, there's, Mississippi it has such a rich history of writers and, and the South has such a rich history 
um, rich, rich literary history that I'm, I'm very proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually don't live in Los Angeles anymore. I'm back in the South. I just moved to Are you? Oh, welcome uh, home. Yeah. Now, I, now I'm just a Southern writer, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Okay. I didn't know you'd move back. Okay. Well, welcome back welcome home. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and for me, and it's kind of because people, I never lived in the South until I married my Yankee husband and moved to Atlanta about 18 years ago. Um, Cause my father, although a Mississippi native, you know, we lived all over the world. We lived in Venezuela, we lived in the Hague, we lived in London, we lived in New York, we lived everywhere. Um, but I always identified as a Southerner because every summer we would spend in Indianola, Mississippi, with all of my cousins and everybody. And I always identified that as home. And it kind of gave me an advantage because, I mean, I feel guilty calling myself a Southern writer. I do write a lot about Southern families because that's what I know. But, um, and, and that's what I call home. But I think I have the advantage because I was an outsider looking in. Um, I also write about sister relationships and, you know, unfortunately I only have three brothers, but my mother was one of five girls. So I spent a lifetime studying that. I remember spending my summers under my, you know, uh, my grandmother's uh, uh, formica kitchen table while my mom and her sisters and aunts and mother and all these Southern women would do their Southern girl talk. Yeah, That's what I hear in my head. Did I ever experience Mm -hmm. myself? No. I mean, I, is that cultural appropriation? <laughs> I never learned this out. I don't know, but but that is what I remember. And those are the voices I hear. So um, if you want to call me, you know, my what I do, Southern fiction, all of my books do take place in the South because my my settings are as much a character as my actual characters are. Mm-hmm. And the Southern setting is what calls to my writer's bone. Mm-hmm. Um, so the not, last night in London is my first book that is not set in the South, but of course I have two main characters who are both Southern. So that kind of helped. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I mean, I'm a, I grew up in the South. I live in the South. Um, I mean, I've lived other places. I actually, when I was little, lived two weeks a month in Manhattan and two weeks a month in this little town in North Carolina. And my mom said she was afraid that I was going to be so scarred because there could not have been a more different, like, you know, kind of, especially like, you know, New York and the, I guess, late eighties or whatever. It was very different. Like you weren't yeah, having no. grits and you know, whatever you weren't Southern fusion wasn't a thing, but she said, she tells me all these funny stories about that. But, um, you know, I, I, I think, um, my, when I wrote my first book, I knew it was like very Southern fiction. It was written in like this, one of the characters like spoke in this very specific Southern dialect. And, um, but I remember my second book came out and the reviews started coming in and they were talking about Southern fiction. And I was like, huh, really? You know, because it wasn't, I wasn't setting out to make it Southern fiction. It just was what, what I, what you love. I mean, yeah, I, that's what every writer does. Well, and it's what, you know, I mean, it's what I know. Like people, it, it made me laugh, especially in under the Southern sky. Like people would send me things and they'd be like, how did you come up with the, like the church softball game and the lemon, the lemon squares and the so-and-so makes the, and I'm like, how did I come up with it? What do you mean? There was no coming up with it. Like that was every Sunday of my entire life. Like there, there was, there's nothing made up about it. It was just my life. So I think all those little, I think we're always mining our lives, especially, you know, even at some point we're not our protagonist anymore, hopefully, but, um, or maybe we are a little bit always, but I think we're always mining our lives for those little itty bitty details and I'm Southern. So I think my books are always going to feel 
very Southern and I'm proud of that. You know, I think that's a label that people have tried to shed, but, um, I'm, I'm okay with that one. I'll I'll keep it. Believe me, the rest (laughs) of the country is fascinated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to answer that part of the question, I mean, I, I don't think that Southern fiction is just read by Southerners. I remember actually doing, um, some of my very first, like West coast events. And it was a long time ago. It was probably for my like third book. And I remember having, thinking this is going to be such a waste of my time and going to this event. And there were all these women there and I was so shocked. And I said, you know, why would you come? Why would you read this book? And one of them said, because we can't imagine that this exists like a place where everyone is their neighbor and, you know, these silly traditions. And, um, it is fun to write about for sure. I imagine the siren probably also had, cause, um, because of the setting, it's the Caribbean. Everybody was looking to escape. And I find that like out of the South, my biggest readers are like in places like Wisconsin and Montana and, and New England um, because they're looking for that escape, you know, and yeah. what else are they going to do in the winter, but read and why not read about a warm climate, you know, climate yes. Like, yes. You know, Caribbean or the South, you know, um, and also kind of, you know, dip their toes into something that's completely unfamiliar. Right. Well, you know, there's there's empathy under all of it. So, you know, it's just kind of the setting. And um, so are y'all and, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But uh, Chrissy, you have a, a book coming out in um, next spring. And Karen, you have a book coming out in November, right? And, and you have one coming out in October, too, right? Yeah. No, no. Uh, same pub date both times i'm thinking that we do no mine's november 2nd but i think the march 29th is the march same 29th we have the same book the march 29th that's not the one you're supposed to be turning in now is it <laughs> not my fault. it was supposed to come out next fall but okay. they decided to move it up to march i'm like really really okay that's a big difference book, you know where they you just buy like the first half of it and then come back a couple months later and you <laughs> next part so we'll see uh, so um, would y'all like to tell us you know what else you're working on or, or Catherine do you have a, a book that you're working on now I do my next book comes out in uh next fall so like a year from from now um and lucky you circle what lucky you <laughs> idle again the vicious circle that's awesome the vicious circle, and it is about a cult in the jungle, in the Mexican jungle. Ooh, yes. wow. that's, that's great. Uh, um, so, do y'all feel? Yeah, I mean, y'all are prolific. You're busy. You're writing a lot. Do you feel um, that the that uh, is there a lot of pressure in the publishing industry to to keep up this pace? And do you feel like you'll be able to, or you might, um, you know? It seems very difficult to me, but y'all do it beautifully. So, um, Catherine, you can go first this time since you've been in the middle the whole time. Yeah, ladies are so much more prolific than me. Uh, well, I mean, no, you just the longest. So. The, yeah, I mean, you got the pace going, Catherine. Yeah, um, I, I I will keep writing stories, and hopefully, people will keep buying them. <laughs> I'm going to keep writing them. So, you know, keep buying them people. (laughs) Yeah. Now I I'm the same way. I don't think it's, it's a matter of pressure from the publisher. It's, I just have so many ideas. 
um, so many things I want to write. Um, right now, I'm, I have a lot of um, real life distractions that are interfering with my writing. It's not, I mean, I love the book I'm working on. That's all I want to be doing. But, you know, elderly parents and we have my children, my daughter's planning on getting married next year. I just had a dog, an elderly dog who'd been very sick. He just passed away. Um, oh, and we're selling our house and buying a new one. And it's just like, and it's a fixer. <laughs> And I know a lot of this is self-imposed, but really all I want to do is write. So um, as soon as my life settles down, you know, I will still be producing. That's really the one thing I want to be doing is producing books. So, and it's and, funny. I mean, you, you, you do two books a year a lot, don't you, Karen? Yeah, I don't plan on it. And I wasn't supposed to be doing it this year, but you know, COVID kind of bumped a book and then that just yeah. kind of. And see, that's what kind of happened to me is I would never have said, Oh yes, I'm going to, you know, have my life and another business and my small child and try to write two books this year. But, um, I had finished the wedding veil, which is my 2022 book. That's about the Vanderbilts. Um, and I pitched my publisher an idea. I I was done with the Peachtree Bluff series, but especially during COVID, I just had this real influx of people asking for more Peachtree Bluff. And, um, and I thought this will be fun. And, um, so I decided to write another Peachtree Bluff book. And so I pitched the idea to my publisher for Christmas of 2022. And they were like, well, we love the idea. You're probably not going to be going on tour for Under the Southern Sky. You're probably not going to be going on tour for Christmas and Peachtree Bluff. Wrong and wrong. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and put out Christmas and Peachtree Bluff in 2021? And I thought, okay, I can do that. Like that's, that's doable. And so um, everybody just ramped up to get that book um, you know, finished and ready and all of that in sort of record time, I think. But, um, I just, I don't know a book a year is like very manageable. I don't know that two a year is manageable. I don't recommend it. It's, it stinks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's really hard. It's a lot. It's a lot to do two in a year. It's great. I mean, I'm so excited. I'm so glad I did it because that was like a COVID gift. Like otherwise I would never be able to do it. I was at home. So Right. I wrote another book. I mean, it you know, it really interferes with the rest of your life. And I would it like does. to enjoy the rest of my life. Right. And I have right. to. So, um, especially with the, the recent complications of, mm-hmm. of, you know, the parents and everything. So it will get better. Yes. <laughs> so, um, this is, is, this is for the Mississippi book festival and we don't have much time, but I did want to ask y'all some questions about books I guess we'll do this the lightning round. And so I'll just throw these out there and y'all can just tell us and you can go back in alphabetical order if you would like. Um, and uh, so what is the very first book that you really loved at any time in your life? You know, childhood, adulthood. Matilda, Roald Dahl. Yeah. Hmm. Secret of the Old Clock, Carolyn Keene. <laughs> um, the Hobbit, Tolkien. Great. Oh, yeah. right. um, so, book that made you want to be a writer or reinforce that desire? Mm-hmm. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind. The Great Gatsby. Oh, cool. Um, the last book you gave as a gift. Cool. Malady Vanity Rising. So, we always look at the same time. No, you go. You go, Catherine. The Vanishing Half. Mm. Hey. Um, mine was and ladies of the club it's an old book from oh, yeah. like 
1980-something, but... Uh, yeah, it was a huge book. And like it won the Pulitzer. <laughs> I wrote down to order that after our last event together, and I haven't oh my done gosh. it. I, I give it as a gift because it's a book that um, it, I remember it to this day, yeah. Okay. If you could have written the books of any other writer, but and uh, the caveat is you would not necessarily have had to live that writer's life, mm. who, what writer would that be? Mm. Anytime. Pat Conroy. Okay. Definitely wouldn't want to live his life, though. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of writers, you wouldn't want to live their own lives. Oh, John right. Didion. Okay. Um, I don't know. This is, this, this is so weird. This is the first thing that popped into my head. And maybe it's because I think I would want to live this life, but I wish I had written the Mitford series. Oh, <laughs> I God. love that series so much. It's just so happy. <laughs> um, and is there a book that you, um, have, you know, have reread or that you like periodically read again, um, on a regular basis or just something that, um, has meant that much to you. Not everybody does that. All the light we cannot see. They're just, I can just open that book anywhere and just read a page. And I'm, you know, like Gloria. the wheels of my, the writer's cogs are just completely oiled and I'm ready to go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm never stuck on one of my own books. It's just beautiful writing. Huh. Uh, Gone Girl. Mm, yes. A good one. I mean, not to repeat my answer, but the only I mean, I've read a Tree Girls in Brooklyn probably like 25 oh, yeah. times or something. Favorite. Ridiculous. Yeah. I read it the first time in fourth grade and I've read it like almost every year since. So okay. okay. Yeah. And um with uh you know, thanks to shelf awareness to cheating off them, what is what is the book that you faked reading? <laughs> and uh you can, you can pass if, if you Ooh, I mean, might be reading the watching. <laughs> what, what is, um, oh, Look Homeward Angel. So I had to oh. read Southern oh. Lit. And I tried that. And I'm sorry. Oh. Okay, I, I, could, I could agree with that one. Yeah. <laughs> I actually just tried... I was doing... I was reading it, trying to read it right now again, because I was like, oh, I'm going to... Yeah, and I just... Older, more mature, you'll get it. No. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's a classic. Sorry, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I got first book ever I got the cliff notes for. <laughs> only, probably the only, because it was for like a high school Southern lit something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and is there a book that um, like recently people have been recommending to you a lot that is on your list to read, or maybe you think I'll never read that, but anything you've been hearing about like, lately? Catherine? Uh, the Push. Mm. Has, I've, I've been hearing people talk about it, but I'm also a little afraid of it because of what I've been hearing. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard of it, but uh, Kristen Hanna's most recent one mm -hmm. uh, that takes place in the Dust Bowl. Again, mm -hmm. I love her writing, but I hear it's like <laughs> very dark and I, mm -hmm. I don't think I could handle it right now. So maybe that might be for a couple of years. I'll try it i'm gonna second the push because i'm like really interested in it but i haven't i haven't even heard of it really? it, it has something to do with like, i know there's a child a mother child relationship 
you know, that's kind of crazy in it. Like there, there's a lot of darkness from what I hear. Okay, I don't need I'm that right now in my life. So yeah, anything with children. I was going to say, like it's very any unknown. child in peril story. Like I just can't, <laughs> I just cannot do it. I can't. You don't know the author. And so you don't know how much they're going to torture. Yeah. Torture the re- like same with dogs. If I think a dog, I yeah, yeah, I promise never to kill any dogs or children. No, I mean, I just it. can't do it. I'll make that promise also. I can't even read it, so I know I can't write it. Yeah. Don't want to go there. Some sort of a seal that goes on books, you know, that there are no, no animals or children harmed. You know, I think my, my grandmother and I talk about this a lot though, and she's like, honey, it's not happening to you. Like, you need to have more boundaries yes, it than this. Is. She's but not I, a writer. She doesn't. I, I know. Internalize everything. She can like really separate herself, and I cannot. Like, it's my child. It's my, like, it's happening to me. Mm-hmm. I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nope. It means you're an immersive reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll go with that. Spin it. Spin go. that positivity. <laughs> well, I am afraid that we really are out of time. I mean, I could, I could do this all day with y'all. You're such a pleasure to be with. And, and I admire you so much. Your, your books are fantastic. Um, we really appreciate the Mississippi Book Festival for getting this together and you know all the hard work that they put into to putting on the uh festival in real life this year and then had to pivot to this so um thank you all for being flexible thank the mississippi book festival for just keeping up uh you know the support of literature and mississippi and um all the readers out there and readers and writers and so um here everybody's books i recommend them all let's see if we can hold them all up don't hurt yourself they're heavy yeah they're not covered for doing this i mean it's for anybody who has never been to oxford mississippi and to score books it is a treat you know when you're going to go see the birthplace of william faulkner is that birthplace or just where he lived at the end of his life then just walk down the street and go to um square books it is it's such a cute little town just don't go your favorite bookstore what did i say bookstore Booktown. I said it's my favorite bookstore. Oh, it is. It's adorable. my parents live in Oxford. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just don't go during football season because you'll. <laughs> <not working. laughs> oh well, well, it's been such a pleasure to be with y'all here today. I hope to be with you maybe next year and anytime you want to come to Oxford, we would love to have you at Square Books. So thank, thank you. you all. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Thanks for having us. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.